Hello, this is Jeff Treisman. This is Matt Schmidt. And you're listening to Impolitik. It is my great pleasure to have with us uh, Professor Thane Gustafson from Georgetown University. I had the pleasure of being his TA for many years when I was doing my PhD there. Um, And he is one of the world's foremost experts on energy. Uh, His latest books, of course, were uh, Wheel of Fortune, The Battle for Oil and Power in Russia, uh, and Upcoming uh, Climate, Russia in the Age of Climate Change, and uh, Bridge, Natural Gas in a Redivided Europe, which I hope we'll talk about more in a few minutes. And I have to say, since, of course, we'll have to talk about uh, Russia's war in Ukraine, I very much remember uh, Russia 2010, uh, back when I was his TA. And so we'll we'll bring that up shortly. Thane, welcome. Matt, thank you very much. And thanks very much for that kind introduction. And um, gosh, you're part of a, a great crew of people who were my teaching assistants when I was teaching comparative political systems. And part of that was a look at Russia and Ukraine. Uh, So in a sense, we're back to familiar ground. Thank you very much for inviting me and also to your colleague, Jeff. Well, thank you, uh, Professor. I want to start off with some basic questions that hopefully will be helpful for our listeners to essentially understand the nature of of oil production and prices, because that's obviously on the front and center of many Americans' um, uh, mindset right now. Can you just give us a basic overview of how are oil prices determined? Uh, and perhaps what is the role of OPEC, uh, and for listeners not familiar, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, uh, in terms of um, setting oil prices? Well, think of the oil market as a huge global bathtub. You have dozens of faucets that are dumping oil into it, and you have dozens of drains that are taking oil out of it. Uh, And the supply meets the demand, and that is how the price is formed. It dances up and down. Since oil is a commodity, it behaves like commodities behave. You never know from one day, day to the next what the price is going to be. It peaks up or it, it, it collapses alternatively as the years go by. And the one way to lose all your money is to try to make bets on what the oil price is going to be a year from now, two years, three years from forward. Very, very unpredictable. Uh, and it's because of that that oil producers, uh, quite naturally, have gotten together and tried to Uh, control the market by limiting production. Uh, And that's the Organization of Petroleum Producing States. That's basically what OPEC stands for. There were 13 members at the outset, and then recently Russia uh, came in as a kind of an associate member with uh, nine others. So that's uh, 13 plus 10 new ones. That makes 23. Altogether, they control something like 60% of uh, world output And uh, uh, they've been trying to keep prices pretty much stable so that they have a steady revenue for themselves. So your bathtub analogy is actually kind of, 
I think very appropriate because it seems to me a more, you know, kind of um, more economic terms. That's a great analogy for uh, supply and then demand um, in and out of that tub, correct? Yes. And to pursue the analogy a little bit, a few years ago, quite by surprise, a new player jumped into the bathtub and set off shockwaves through the whole system. And that was the United States. The United States used to be the world's largest producer of oil. But then our great fields in Texas, Pennsylvania, elsewhere, started to fade and our oil production started to go down. And we were starting to import more and more. But then a technological breakthrough occurred in the United States completely unexpectedly. And all of a sudden, we were back on top. This is called variously shale oil or tight oil. Your listeners may have heard of that. And a couple of years ago, we were back up to a record level of oil production. And a lot of this oil is produced by smaller independent producers. Uh, the big capital is down in Midland, Texas, in the Permian Basin, as it's called. And uh, the, the problem with the shale oil is that the wells that you drill don't last for very long. So you have to keep on drilling. That means you have to keep on borrowing money to be able to pay for all that drilling. So it's, it's been a, a, a very strange adventure where we're producing a lot of oil, but at the same time, the producers weren't making any money. So when COVID came along, uh, our output began dropping again. And so um, we'll see what the future of the great American shale oil revolution is going to be. Yeah, I think you bring up an interesting point, um, you know, talking about uh, shale oil. But, you know, I think a lot of listeners have probably heard of this notion of uh, strategic reserves, which uh, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, is the largest known emergency supply in the world primarily based in, if I think correctly, Louisiana and Texas, or probably the, the two states combined. Uh, does that suggest that the United States has a lot of leverage in terms of influencing uh, oil or gas prices, um, either globally or uh, more critically for American citizens domestically? No, practically none. And the, the reason for that is that the volumes are very small compared to the uh, the, the, the output of the industry as a whole. Uh, in round numbers, the world oil industry produces 100 million barrels uh, a day of oil. And uh, the total strategic reserve, if memory serves, is on the order of 8 million barrels. So uh, we're, we're talking about a very, very small amount of oil. Uh, I want to stay on this topic for just one more question. I grew up on the northern edge of the Permian Basin, so oil drilling was incredibly important uh, in, in my community. And of course, uh, everything went bust in the 1980s, which hurt us uh, dearly. But what's happened with shale is it's been really important in rebounding those economies out on the Great Plains, um, which, which had been high oil producers um, and then had not been and, and are again. And I'm curious, if my anecdotal experience, Dr. Gustafson, is something that is shared throughout the country because, you know, domestic policy is where foreign policy flows from. And whatever, whatever we get in terms of world oil prices from our shale oil, it does employ a lot of people 
Isn't that true? Well, that's right. Uh, the oil industry employs a whole lot of people who are on the uh, wells, the uh, well sites, the drilling sites. Um, they're called by picturesque names like roughnecks and roustabouts. Uh, but that's only the, the tip of a large number of people who are working in providing oil field services, supplies, equipment, and whatnot. Brand names such as Schlumberger, Baker Hughes, and Halliburton, uh, alongside the brand name uh, oil producers. And then, as I mentioned, hundreds of independent producers, which you might call mom and, mom and pop or wildcatters, sometimes they're called. And uh, if times are good and prices are high, uh, everyone makes money and people migrate into the communities where the action is. For a while, the action was in the Dakotas. Uh, now that's faded somewhat and the action is in the Permian. Uh, but as I said, the peculiarity of shale oil is that the wells that you drill, instead of lasting 10 years and longer, as in conventional oil, um, these shale wells tend to reach their peak within a year or less, and then they decline. Uh, and so that makes for an unstable situation. And the boom in the Permian, Permian uh, didn't last once the uh, COVID came along. Uh, now it's boom times again, it's up and down, uh, but uh, the chances are that it's not going to last uh, for very many years longer. Thank you. I want to I want to switch and move from Europe, uh, from the United States to Europe, and talk a little bit about your book, The Bridge: Natural Gas in a Redivided Europe, um, which came out from Harvard University Press. Here we are in 2022, uh, and we've been talking about Nord Stream 2 so much that it's a you know average Americans know what this is now. Here we are in the largest land war uh, in Europe uh, since 1945. How does the book feel to you, uh, you know, two years after publishing? Well, the war is a very unexpected event. Uh, it is a tragic event. And it also then turns upside down a lot of the uh, conventional wisdoms and arrangements by which the gas industry was born and prospered over a half century, basically going back to the 1960s when gas was first discovered and developed in the Netherlands. And it was the Dutch who then pioneered the gas trade throughout Europe. The Russians came in, uh, in particular, when gas was discovered in, in uh, West Siberia. Uh, and very quickly, pipelines were built to Europe uh, and both the Soviet Union, as it was then, and Europe uh, quickly found a common interest. And at the same time, the view was, particularly in Germany, that good business also promoted good relations. And so it was. Uh, for decades, the Russians were very careful to observe their contracts, one or two noted exceptions, but uh, that... Uh, uh, didn't change the basic fact that this was business and both sides treated it as such. All of a sudden, it's no longer business. And so we're in a different world, Matt. And uh, uh, all the cards are in the air at this moment. History is on the loose. 
uh, and what will become of that business that was functioning over a half century, who knows? Do you think that Europe will ever trust Russian gas supplies again? No. What will they do? Move to LNG or clean energy or some combination? Well, that's a, a, um, a slightly complicated story because Europe uh, has also been very conscious of the threat of climate change and has been working to develop a climate policy. Uh, unlike most places around the world, they have taken it seriously and they actually made some progress in developing a, uh, a market system to control carbon dioxide emissions. And as part of that, the goal that was adopted was to free themselves from dependence on fossil fuels, and in particular, natural gas. Now, they couldn't do that right away, but they had put in place mechanisms and laws and procedures and whatnot to diversify their supplies, but above all, to diversify away from gas. Now we have a new motive, and that's security. So the question is, Will the Europeans continue the push for a climate policy or will that now be overridden by the concern for security? My bet is that the two will actually push in the same direction and that we'll see uh, an accelerated effort, in fact, to uh, move away from gas and from fossil fuels in Europe. So do you see a short-term expansion of LNG capacity uh, you know, to bridge uh, that time or or not? We'll stick with what we have in terms of LNG capacity and just race forward elsewhere. LNG is very definitely an alternative, uh, a partial alternative. Uh, the problem is that it's more costly by the time you get it into your system. The Russians have a competitive advantage there with their pipelines already built. Um, LNG requires facilities to take liquid gas, it's refrigerated to where it's liquid, off the tanker that delivers it. You've got to regasify the gas and then put it into the distribution system. Uh, all of that takes time and money. And the LNG alternative uh, had taken second place to pipelines up until recently. Now, all of a sudden, because of the security motive, we're going to see more and more effort to expand LNG and to expand it as quickly as possible. But you're talking about a long supply chain from the producer through transportation down to regasification and distribution. And uh, these, these systems don't change overnight. So probably for a day, it's going to take Europe a decade really to throw off dependence on pipeline gas. And those suppliers that's primarily North American gas? The LNG comes from a variety of sources. Qatar uh, is um, in the Middle East, was a pioneer. Uh, the United States is right along behind. That's been developing rapidly. Uh, Australia is a provider and so on. So uh, there are many different sources of LNG. All you need is a large gas supply and then a good refrigerator. Uh, to liquefy the gas, put it on a tanker, and it's on its way. Um, that's the way of the future. That is what the natural gas business is increasingly going to look like. 
But again, it takes time and it takes money. So what about Ukraine? Uh, how does it rebuild after the war? How does it rebuild its energy infrastructure if it can't rely on Russian gas? At the time the war broke out, a very interesting thing had happened. Uh, Ukraine had ceased to be dependent on Russian gas. Uh, the Ukrainians have done a number of things, some of them deliberately, some of them by lucky, by force of circumstance. Uh, they consume much less gas than they used to. They've ra raised the, they raised the gas prices to the consumer and consumers consumed less gas. Uh, there are tr traders and small suppliers in, uh, to the west of Ukraine uh, who began supplying gas from the west into Ukraine. Uh, there's been some development of renewables. And so adding one thing and another, uh, for a couple of years before the war broke out, Ukraine was not actually taking any gas from Russia for its own needs. Now, where Ukraine still relies on Russian gas is for transit. They get some revenue, about a billion dollars a year, for transiting gas from Russia through to Europe. Thank you. Um, I have a bigger question about Russia, which is looking into the future, 10, 20, 30 years, you tell me, uh, assuming that there's, uh, you know, a crash of the carbon economy, what does Russia do, given its reliance on, you know, oil and gas for, um, you know, for its economy? Well, that's a very central question, especially in light of the war that has now broken out. Uh, in a book called Klimat, which was just published last, last November, I did a kind of a thought experiment. And the question that I asked was, if the energy transition, if the climate-related transition is real, and I believe it is real, uh, and if we witness a peak in world oil demand, as I think even the oil companies accept is probably coming, maybe by the mid-2030s or thereabouts, and if we see a... Um, a, a slowdown in the rate of growth of natural gas use, then the big question is, what does that do to Russian export revenues? And you're quite right, Matt, that the Russians really depend very heavily on hydrocarbon export revenues. What alternatives do they have? So in the book, I went around the landscape and I looked at coal, I looked at agriculture, I looked at nuclear power and a whole range of other possible money earners. And the conclusion I came to is that Russia will be very lastingly uh, impacted by climate change and by a world decline in hydrocarbon consumption, when and if that comes about, as I believe it will. Uh, for our listeners out there, we are speaking with Dr. Thane Gustafson from Georgetown University. And we've been talking about some of the items in his new uh, book, Klimat, that's spelled Russian style, K-L-I-M-A-T, uh, Russia in the Age of Climate Change, and his prior book from 2020, The Bridge, Natural Gas in Redivided Europe. Professor, do you uh, have anything you'd like to add uh, for our listeners or anything that you would perhaps like to emphasize? 
This is a very painful moment for anybody who has focused on Russia since the end of the Soviet Union. For 30 years, we have been uh, thinking that with the end of the communist dictatorship, with the end of the totalitarian system, that Russia would rejoin the world community, and particularly at a time of globalization in which basically economic interest creates peace or the basis for peace. All of that has now been thrown up in the air by the Russian invasion. And who knows how the pieces are going to come down. But for anybody who's been following Russia, we're suddenly in a different world. Thank you again, Thane. It's been a pleasure uh, speaking with you again. And good luck with your new book, Klimat, Russia in the Age of Climate Change from Harvard Press uh, and out, uh, out last year, November 21. Thanks again and take care. Thank you both very much. Now time for the debrief with Jeff and Matt. Uh, so, Matt, I think that was a very insightful um, uh, interview uh, with one of the world's foremost leading experts uh, on oil and gas production, um, and uh, in particular with relation to geostrategic uh, issues and concerns. Uh, I think that one thing that I, I think a lot of Americans uh, need to take away, and he used that analogy of the bathtub, um, is that, you know, oil prices are not set by any president um, or any individual. And I, I think this seems to be a common misconception uh, that's always politicized by both parties, both Democrats and Republicans. Um, but instead, you know, the supply, um, in particular through OPEC members, demand, and of course, as we talked about in this, this interview, uh, geopolitics, that's what determines oil prices. Yeah, that's right. President Biden came out just today and, uh, you know, chastised uh, gas stations for not lowering their prices uh, because oil prices had dropped something like $30 today from, from about 120 I think. And, of course, this is kind of ridiculous because gas uh, stations, right, gas companies, fuel companies actually buy their gas, you know, two or three weeks ago um, and are, are working on supplies that they're selling to customers that were, you know, were bought at that $120 price. And I think Americans just don't understand how the market works in that way domestically never mind you know the great bathtub of oil on planet earth and soon to be as thane was saying the great bathtub of liquid natural gas so one other thing that we can think about in terms of the not only supply and demand but the impact of geopolitics um you know, the impact of geopolitics in terms of you know transportation possible disruption and even human resources right the individuals who are out in the fields um uh, working at refineries or working in terms of uh, ex extraction um, we can think about some very important you know events uh, that have geopolitical events that have impacted uh, oil prices uh, we can think about uh, the young Kippur War uh, in 1973, in which Arab members imposed embargo on the United States, uh, led to increases in gas prices. We can think of Trump's withdrawal more recently from the Iranian nuclear deal uh, and his restoring of sanctions on Iran, and that corresponded with an enormous increase in the price of oil uh, as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're, we're sort of, history has come back, right, with a vengeance, and, and here we are. To me, when I hear you talk about that, and when I hear him talk about that, what I see 
is us on the on the edge of a new world, right? If we hit that that collapse of the carbon economy, um, shockingly soon, I think he said 2035, right? 2040, somewhere around in there, when we start to see this growth really start to um, start to plummet, uh, then you you lose that geostrategic calculus that you know you and I were trained in, that we've all lived in these many years, and it, it goes somewhere else. Um, it, it, it becomes something else. The world doesn't pivot on Saudi Arabia. It doesn't pivot on, you know, Russian gas. It doesn't pivot on whether or not we can suck, you know, dirty and expensive oil out of shale all across North America. It moves to things like fusion or to really efficient solar, other forms of clean energy. And the, um, you know, the foundation of how we think about state behavior uh, in this new energy environment is really going to change, I think. Uh, from what we've you know been living in for for two or three hundred years now. So Jeff, one of the things that I wanted to ask you as the as the show's resident realist or neo realist, whatever you are, um, is you know after this war ends, uh, God willing, soon, what happens to a Russia who can't sell its oil or its gas where it used to be able to in Europe because it is seen as a pariah state? Um, how does that change Russian behavior in, you know, on the international stage? You know, I think the first part of that question is pretty interesting is when does this war end? And I, I think, you know, a lot of listeners uh, and even our students, right, should be prepared for the war could end tomorrow, um, either in terms of, you know, military outcomes or in terms of the negotiations that, you know, uh, tend to fluctuate over the past two weeks and, you know, what comes of that. Um, but it could also last decades, if not years, decades, right? So I think that's something to consider. And as the time goes by, uh, these economic sanctions being imposed upon uh, Russia, in particular with respect to its oil, obviously, it's going to have an enormous impact. And we're already seeing that. Uh, we're already seeing the impact in terms of, uh, or the repercussions of sanctions in terms of, you know, Russia now has to turn to uh, different currencies to pay off its debt. It's having to turn to uh, its, you know, allies, uh, China, uh, in particular, in terms of military assistance. So we're already seeing that impact on Russia's economy. And I, I think that's one of the more fascinating, um, um, you know, kind of outcomes of this, this conflict is, you know, sanctions, um, be it economic or on oil and resources, uh, are always hotly disputed by experts. Um, whether or not it's a, it's a, uh, a panacea, I, I don't think anybody's making that point. Um, but, it, you know, the impact that sanctions have on a target state has always been hotly debated. But on a number of, of accounts, you know, the, the sanctions being imposed on Russia are unprecedented. We haven't seen anything like this before. And it's, as economists have pointed out, it's not only set back Russia, you know, decades, even going back to the the, the Soviet era. I, I've seen some economists even say this is setting back Russia, setting them back maybe even a century. Uh, and I think that's really important now that, you know, the future of Russia and its its capacity and influence in the world might actually dwindle to a certain extent. On the other hand, what does you know the, that have in terms of Putin uh, and miscalculation and being put in a corner? Um, you know, so I, I think that's something to for the global community to watch out for. You know, it's interesting um, what you say there, and I think you know I was surprised that these sanctions hit as effectively as they have in terms of tanking the ruble, right? Tanking the overall economy. But I still remain deeply skeptical at, at this point in the war when we're recording this 
as to whether or not those sanctions are going to sort of work the way they are intended, right? Work to hurt the oligarchs and the elites that are near Putin, who would then push Putin to change his policy in Ukraine. I don't see that happening yet. And one of the reasons I don't think it's happening is because many of the so-called oligarchs um, believe in Putin's vision. And so they're willing to sacrifice whatever money they weren't able to already squirrel away from the sanctions in, in support of that vision up to a point. And we don't know where that point is yet. But uh, what I'm saying is, is that the sanctions may work in this macro sense and still not be able to change the state behavior of Russia in, in this war. And I find that fascinating. Yeah, I think that's the point of, you know, those uh, who um, critique uh, the role of sanctions that, um, no, economic sanctions are not going to force or compel a, a target state, this case Russia and Putin, uh, to withdraw forces. But I think that the marginal impact uh, and the cost being imposed is, is important uh, and it weakens the state. It weakens uh, an adversary of the United States, an adversary now of the global order and the world. Um, and I think that's important. Um, in my own research, though, I think there's a difference between sanctions and a uh, pre-existing foreign aid. Um, so sanctions is different than withdrawing existing foreign aid or support to a country, um, which has had dramatic impacts uh, on, on other countries and their behavior. Uh, and we can think of the United States in terms of you know, similar conflicts uh, in Nicaragua. Um, the, the withdrawal of or removal of foreign support to Somoza's regime in Nicaragua by the Carter administration um, in light of its you know, extreme brutal treatment of, 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 of citizens uh, during the revolution um, compelled the, the regime to alter its behavior. So foreign aid or with removing foreign aid is different than sanctions. And, and obviously we don't have that same sort of leverage. So uh, yeah, the outcome definitely remains to be seen. So Matt, I want to close with a, a final thought um, and get your, your perspective on this. And that's what the professor was referring to, um, you know, that Russia had, there was great hopes globally that Russia uh, would be integrated into the new world order and the global community with the fall of the Soviet Union. And this, this war and invasion of Ukraine essentially shattered that notion, shattered what many uh, scholars would call the neoliberal order. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Um, how do you think this plays out in terms of the, the future for uh, Russia? Well, I think the answer is that values matter. Um, and if you have a state that shares your values or is getting closer to the values that you care about, like democracy and free elections and free speech and, and equal rights, um, which is where Ukraine is, is moving, has moved rapidly, then you can integrate it uh, into the world order quite successfully. The situation with Russia has always been problematic. We tried to bring Russia into uh, you know, into global uh, groups, alliances like the, the World Trade Organization um, and, you know, the G, whatever it was when we brought Russia in, G7, um, you know, a, a decade or two ago. And we successfully did that, but only really in the sense of their hard power interests, right, or their hard economic interests, that they would do these things. And what never happened uh, was the development in that society anyway, of the kinds of values that we value, that we trust in in the West, right? The things that we can um, we can make deals based upon, and that never happened in Russia. Now, I think it will happen. Um, I think that this war ends in the streets of Moscow, um, not in Kiev, and that we're looking at the possibility of an overthrow of the Putinist regime. Now, that may not happen uh, soon. It may happen, you know, next month. Uh, probably not. Uh, it may happen in five years. It may happen in 10 years. But I think ultimately 
going forward into this century, Russia can't continue to, uh, to, to be non-Western, right? It is a European state. It's art, it's culture, it's music. It's all European. It's basic philosophical grounding is Greek and Latin. Right? It is a European state, but it's been pulled away from that foundation for over a century, and it has to get back to it. And I think eventually it will. It's a question of how long that will take and how many people will have to be hurt in that process. And that's really up to Vladimir Putin. Very interesting and very important things for us to consider. Uh, I want to thank uh, our listeners for joining us on this episode of Impolitik. Uh, please like and subscribe and stay tuned for future episodes. 